0: Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 26 and 27 this morning, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. But Before we start, I just want to talk about a few things. Um, one of them is that I have a problem. Um, my problem is that I think way too highly of myself. And at the same time, I'm usually overwhelmed with my obvious weaknesses, especially in my walk with Christ. Um, for instance, I will read Christian biographies of heroes of the faith, and usually whenever I put that book down, I think something like, I can do that, right? Like, I'm like, man, these guys are incredible, and I, I think that I'm, you know, I'm Jim Elliot. And then, and then I'll, I'll read that, and then I'll, I'll make a plan, I'll call my friends and tell them about the plan, reevaluate that plan, and go out to execute the plan to become this spiritual hero. And usually that ends in horrible failure. Tragically, I do this with the Bible too. I want to be strong like Samson, brave like David, wise like Solomon, and lead like Nehemiah. And then usually this ends in shame and inadequacy as well. Basically my problem is that I have this unending desire to want to justify myself while at the same time realizing that I have no shot of being able to justify myself. So the way that this sin affects me and the passage that I've been given to preach this Palm Sunday has been absolutely devastating for my spiritual life. Here's what I mean. I think that I'm something because I get to preach Palm Sunday. It's a constant war of pride when you get a microphone in a pulpit. You think that it's up to you to somehow convince all these people that you are a good preacher, and then combine that with the fact that I was given 144 verses to preach describing the climax of the most important news in the entire universe. And what you have is a person who was once prideful and now is unbelievably humbled. You see, the the hero in every story of the Bible is Jesus. But it is impossible to miss that in the text that we are approaching this morning. This morning, we are going to watch the death scene of our Savior unfold. And I've realized in studying this that I can't copy it. There's no watching Him coming to earth to do what He was set out to do and thinking, yeah, I probably could have done that. Um, only He could do the mission that we're going to look at this morning. And all the sin of my pride and all the shame that I have is what he carried to the cross to slaughter it for me. So the cross has devastated me in powerful ways and then empowered me in ways beyond what I could ever imagine in preparing this sermon because it got my eyes off of me and onto Jesus. So the title of this sermon is Behold Your God. God has revealed himself to us in his word and also and the person and work of Jesus, and what we're going to look at in these two chapters is the ultimate display of what God is like. The point of the Bible is to reveal the glory of God to the people that God created so that we might respond in faith and in worship of who God is and what he has done for his own glory. And this should be a staggering reality that we have to sit under this morning. As we behold our God, we must remember that God is, Is holy, perfect righteousness, that perfect justice flowing from that righteousness, which means perfect, completely justifiable, real wrath on anything or anyone not holy, because He is holy. The other reality that we will be confronted with is God is holy, but that means that we are not holy. This perfect God created us and in our choices and by our nature we have chosen to reject His righteousness, hate His justice, despise His wrath. We are sinful and we sin. We are not holy. But, not only is God holy, God is love. This perfect God that created us has to punish us because of our unholiness. But, he loves us and wants us. So how can a holy God be in a relationship with unholy, sinful people? Only by the cross of Jesus. His love is His willingness to meet the demands of His justice. If you remember back in the summer we started with the series in Genesis to trace the promised child and when we started Matthew it was the arrival of the promised child. The cross was planned A, to rescue us from the sin in the world, but mostly the sin in us. We saw in Genesis that the promised child was coming to crush the head of the serpent that was working against God and his creation. And that strife between offspring and serpent drove the entire biblical storyline to the two chapters that we are diving into this morning. It's a huge deal. In the most glorious and mysterious way, the way that our God decided to show off what He is like is through a gruesome murder scene of His innocent Son who died in our place. That's how He chose to show us who He is. He died to vindicate the character of God who must punish sin. He died to vindicate the character of God who would stop at nothing to be back with the ones He created should they come to Him in faith. The text we are about to walk through will show this moment in history that changed history and can change your story forever if you will see it as horrifying because of your sin and beautiful because it is a display of God's love for you. So for people not in Christ, in a room this big, there's no way that all of us are people who have come to Jesus in faith. This is the news that you must respond to that will determine the course of your life and for my brothers and sisters in here the bible makes it clear that our struggles with sin our lack of stability in suffering is because we have forgotten what has been done to our sin. so this morning is a hopeful powerful reminder of what has happened to our sin so with that being said let's look at the first verse of matthew 26 When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So, finishing all these sayings, what are those? The sayings that he just finished ended, you remember last week, with a sobering reminder of a reality that directly affects every person in this room. For those of us who trust Jesus, there is eternal life. For those of us who reject Jesus, there is eternal punishment. That's what he just finished saying before he transitions into this section of the narrative. There is no neutral ground. You are either his or you are against him. And throughout this narrative, what we are going to see are all the different ways that people, the side characters in the story of what Jesus had come to do, the different ways that they reject him, proving that they are not for him. And then he mentions to the disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus is demonstrating that he is about to initiate the reason that he came to this earth, because he is the Son of Man. Let's keep going. Then, after these things, the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So these religious leaders enter the narrative of the reason that Jesus came to earth. And if you remember, these religious leaders are the people that Jesus had spent pretty much the last three years owning. Uh, Theologically, intellectually, spiritually, you name it, Jesus was showing them that he was the one with actual spiritual authority. And now they decide that it's time to start the plan to kill him. Please remember, even though we're entering in human agents into this story that are making their plans to kill our Savior, we must remember Jesus was coming for a mission. Jesus will lay down his life for us. These people were enemies of Jesus, and the way that their rejection played out for them to prove that they were not on Jesus's side was for them to hate who Jesus is and what he has done. And this is the way That some of us have reacted to Jesus before God opened our eyes to the beauty of who he is and what he's done. And maybe this is how some of us live right now. We may not say the words, I hate Jesus. But in the way that you live, are you proving yourself to be someone who is against him? Story continues, verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, She has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This passage is important to realize. This is a beautiful thing that Jesus, on his way to the reason he came to earth, has taken time to stop by a leper's house. On his way to the most important thing that he will do, he has time to, For the outcasts, and I believe this shows a very particular beauty of who Jesus is. The person and work of what Jesus is doing is a huge deal, but he always has time. Always has time for those that are destitute, their life has wrecked them, the ones society has forgotten, the ones on the outside of what he is doing. He has time for them. And then, this woman's actions here in pouring this alabaster flask on him demonstrate a type of all-out worship that clearly pleases Jesus. Some scholars say that this ointment could have been worth an entire year's worth of salary. Think about that. Entire year's worth, she sees him, realizes his worth, and decides it is worth it to her. But we do see another sinful reaction to the worth of Jesus here. The disciples, those who know him best, become indignant to someone who was willing to go all out in their worship of Jesus. So this turns the tables on us as well. We must reckon with the question, what is Jesus worth to us? Is it worth doing something that represents all of what you've trusted in, all that you have earned, all that you've been given, or do we see things like that and we think that is crazy? Not quite worth it. The disciples seem to think that maybe Jesus could have been, I don't know, worth half a salary. Not all out. What is Jesus worth to us? And I love this. We see another hint of what all history is heading toward. I love the detail there. This ointment wasn't just something that showed the worth of Jesus to this woman. This ointment was a sign of what he was coming to do. Think about how strange that would have been. In that moment, Jesus says, this ointment was a sign, is there preparing me for burial. We <laughs> I mean, don't usually bury alive people, right? He's showing hints once again along the way, on his way to the cross, of just what he was about to do. What we see in verse 14, the enemies of God are still on the move. So even though we take this sidestep to show the beauty and worth of Jesus, they're still on the move in this narrative. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? They paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. What an incredible contrast between these two people. You see that? This woman thinking, all that she had earned, maybe for an entire year, was worth it to worship Jesus. And this man, Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples deciding that 30 pieces of silver was worth betraying the most incredible man to ever live. And, man, I think so often it's easy to just skip over these points in the narrative, realizing just how devastating what Judas Iscariot is, what he just did. This is Terrible. These terrifying verses represent another tragic way that the enemies of God, people who do not follow Jesus, show, show how they feel about him. They betray him for the love of power and money. So we've got to reckon with this too. Remember, we, we can't just stop and see ourselves as the hero of this story, right? That's Jesus. We've got to see the sinful tendencies in our own lives, in these people. So you've got to ask yourself, do these things keep you from coming to him in faith? Love of power, love of money. Or another way, those of us who are followers of Jesus, would you drop Jesus? Drop the whole thing. If it meant you could have unlimited financial security and the guarantee that people in high places would approve of you. I hope not, but we're all capable of really sinful reactions, and we have got to see, do we love Jesus in a way that means all that I've earned, all that I've had is worth worshiping him with, or is it worth it because of my love of power or my love of financial security, comfort, whatever whatever have you there? Will it keep me from continuing to follow Jesus? And listen, for those of us in this room who are not followers of Jesus, you need to know, we really do think this is worth it. Like, we read passages like this, and we see the all-out worship, and though there might be some sinful indignation in us, thinking, wow, it's a whole year's worth of salary, that seems pretty extreme. If we claim that we know Jesus and we have followed him, we really do, we really do think that it's worth it. And Judas didn't. He followed Jesus as a fake In a lot of ways, Jesus was the first prosperity gospel convert. Think about it. Followed Jesus as a fake. He followed Jesus and then used him for material gain. It's a horrible thing, but I love to just think of the mercy and kindness of Jesus. If you remember, this man, Jesus knew exactly what was going on. He knew. But yet, chapters earlier, Jesus still will wash Judas' feet. Kindness, mercy on display, even though this is a horrible thing that Judas has done. Jesus is still in complete control of this, though. Look at 17. No, it seems like the forces are lining against him, but he's in complete control. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, uh, say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better of that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. This passage that I previously mentioned highlights, once again, the complete control of Jesus over every detail of his life and pending death. He knew exactly how to get to where they needed to be for their last meal together, and Jesus already knew what Judas had done. It's interesting here, we notice that the other disciples called Jesus Lord, they didn't want to be the one who betrayed him, and I think Judas' heart was exposed here, saying, is it I, Rabbi, not the affectionate Lord of following him, but Jesus already knew it. Which brings up a very crucial point for us in this room. You need to know that you cannot fool Jesus. Who he is and what he has done will expose you. You are either for him or against him, and it has nothing to do with how much you've been at church or how much you have done good things or how much you have acted like you know Jesus or how many ministry things you have checked off your list. If you are a fraud, Jesus knows. Jesus knew about Judas. It was a fake. His heart did not belong to him. This will expose you. You've got to ask. You've got to reckon yourself with this. What Will you do with who Jesus is? In 26, the narrative continues. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. It is in this text where Jesus gives us the incredible gift of communion or the Lord's Supper. This would have brought up some incredible parallels for them, those that knew their Old Testament. The Passover was this um, celebration instituted by God in the Old Covenant. Um, meant to remind people that God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. You probably remember that if you're familiar with your Bibles. But by connecting the Passover meal to himself, Jesus was showing them that what he was doing was a better exodus. It's incredible. The Israelites were to slaughter a lamb and put the blood on the door, and they were to trust that their, their God would pass over them. Like, we tend to forget that the Israelites were sinful, just like the Egyptians. The difference between the two is that one of them was covered by blood. They were to trust that because of blood of a slaughtered lamb, God would pass over them and destroy those who were not covered in blood. And they were to trust their God as he led them out of slavery. And now, think about the implications of this. Jesus was saying that he is going to be the slaughtered lamb. He's going to be it, and he was the one leading them out of their slavery to sin. You realize this? We could do a whole series on the fact that Jesus is the slaughtered lamb of the Passover, but it shows us incredible things that are true about your life that maybe you didn't know. We, we need to know that we are enslaved to sin apart from Christ. Like, when you're enslaved, it means you obey by force. Sin has a power over you. All you can do is sin. But Jesus saying that he is the one that can redeem us from that, not only is he the one, he doesn't just drop in and say, obey these rules and I'll rescue you. He drops in and he dies to redeem us and then leads us out of all the ways that we are enslaved to sin. And you don't get out of your slavery to sin Without blood. Or without trust in the one who bled. Realize this. The Passover lamb. Jesus isn't just going to die for you. Jesus is going to die instead of you. Gotta see that. Of course he dies for us, but Jesus is dying in our place, meaning all of our choices to be enslaved by sin make us deserve to be the ones who bleed. But Jesus in this passage showing that He's going to be the one whose blood will be spilled. Verse thirty. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, you gotta love Peter, so far Matthew, right? Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples did the same. So the story continuing to build here and we see once again Jesus' life is still perfectly fulfilling the Old Testament and now it looks like even those who are closest to Jesus are going to have a sinful reaction to Jesus. Peter's right. They should have been willing to stay with them but we see here that even the disciples are going to scatter and leave our Savior. Jesus continues in 36. in all of Jesus' life. He's approaching his death, and we get to see a picture of his prayer life and his relationship with his Father. And we get to see the weight of what he is about to do for us, and what we have done will happen to him because of our sin. So we got to reckon with this. In this moment, Jesus is very sorrowful and very troubled. Why? Was it the physical pain he was about to endure? I mean, he's about to experience a torture and death from professional killers. It's, I think it's unhealthy for us to not make ourselves realize just how physically painful the cross was for Jesus. We can't skip over the details in hopes of softening the blow. This was going to be suffering unlike anything any of us have ever seen and will ever see but it wasn't the physical pain that was making jesus very sorrowful and troubled jesus would command his people to rejoice when they are persecuted and jesus was not rejoicing in this prayer jesus can handle physical pain for his father's glory wasn't physical was it maybe the emotional pain he was about to endure Jesus would be abandoned by most of his closest friends. He would be mocked and hated on by people that he loves. It wasn't this. Jesus commanded his followers to bless people when reviled. And Jesus was not rejoicing in this moment. It wasn't the fact that he couldn't handle the physical pain, it wasn't the fact that he was scared that he was going to feel lonely the reason Jesus was feeling this inner turmoil in his soul that other gospel writers would say, this prayer, this this just angst in his soul would actually lead him to sweat drops of blood, that intensity was because he was about to experience the weight of the sins of the world and the divine wrath that God was about to unleash on sin. He was innocent. These sins were not his sins. These sins were ours. And just the anticipation of this thing coming was causing our Lord to pray in a depth that I don't know we will ever come close to. You realize this. He wasn't just afraid of the physical torture or just afraid of the shame. He knew what was about to happen is he was going to experience full, complete, divine wrath for something he did not do. He was not sin. He did not sin. He was going to become sin. And as we consider the weight of this moment, it is crucial that we see something. And this is the one probably that I fall into the most. That it is somehow possible to be bored of the death of Jesus. The disciples fell asleep after being warned and you not just stay awake for what I'm about to go do. He'd only told them I don't even know how many times so far. Asked them to pray and watch because something big was about to happen and the disciples fell asleep. What a devastating response to the cross. And we are just like them. I hope we know this. We have willing spirits and weak flesh. Somehow we can fall asleep on the most important realities in the entire universe. And I'm not just talking when you start praying at night and you doze off. I'm saying that many of us, we will come to church on Sunday, get excited about the fact that Jesus had died and rose again, and we will sleepwalk the rest of the week. And it doesn't make any difference in our lives, the fact that Jesus took our sin. Like, that bothers me a lot. It is possible for me to get bored of that. Jesus literally telling them, I need to go over here and pray this, can you please, this this is super crucial and important, I need you to stay awake and watch, and let's not act like that the mission we've been given as a church is not something that is unbelievably important and weighty, we're on the other side of the cross and resurrection, but Jesus has equipped and sent us to reach lost people, and it's possible for us to fall asleep on that. It's terrifying for me to think how often I've been listening to a sermon and all of a sudden I can think about anything else. It's possible for me to hear stories of how God is working and just would rather do anything else. Willing spirit, weak flesh. I hope this text can wake us up in ways that change us forever. You need to see that. This is a serious thing. If What we say we believe about Jesus is true. It should be impossible for us to be bored. Verse 47. Now, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Judas at once and said, or Jesus, and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left and fled. The evil closing in on Jesus. Notice the two way he responds. Calls Jesus or Judas friend. <laughs> Still unbelievable. I can like find out someone said something sort of wrong to me. And like there's no way I'm calling them friend. Like I'm like grudge for a year. Okay. If you make fun of me but Jesus already knows this. The moment is at hand. He calls him friend. And then he heals the guy's ear. I don't know if I have any real insightful words for that. It's just incredible. But you think about the power on display here, right? Like, you imagine mob mentality. They're all fired up, probably a lot of adrenaline rushing. They're going to go get this evil man, and they're coming. They have swords and clubs, I'm assuming, expecting a fight. And then the man there here to fight literally just says, put the sword away. Like, you guys could have done this the whole time, but now you're choosing to do it now. But don't worry, I knew this the whole time. (laughs) That's intimidating, right? And then in that moment, we see the disciples eventually, in fear, I guess, leave him and flee. Jesus has to face this moment alone. See the evil reactions, though, even though we see two incredible ways that Jesus responds to sinful people in the leaving and fleeing, we see two more ways that we can respond to Jesus. Betrayal, running away when things get hard, fleeing him because of fear of what people might think. 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas and the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At least two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, ironic, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God, I adjure you by you. <laughs> Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robe and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Peter is following closely behind as these next scenes take place. And obviously the religious high courts aren't able to find any fault with Jesus. Because he's innocent but he remains silent, an act of accepting their punishment while realizing he is not guilty. And I love this. Jesus makes the claim that he will one day be alive and come back. He is making a claim that he is actually God, and this made the religious people upset. Jesus, the son of the living God, is accused of blasphemy. And we see, even in this, a few more evil ways that we can respond to who Jesus is. We can accuse him of lying about who he is. We can spit in his face in complete disrespect. Let's finish the chapter here. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it for them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth, and again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. (laughs) Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the sayings of Jesus before the rooster crows, You will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter again showing us another way that we react wrongly to who Jesus is. We deny him, disassociate ourselves from him when things get hard even though we know it's wrong. Think about your life when you go through the worst possible suffering, how quickly, how easy it is to just think that God's not for you anymore. Or in those moments when you get the chance to witness to who Jesus is to that person but because of fear we just disassociate ourselves completely. We are all like peter in this but we see in 27 that jesus knew this would happen when morning came all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against jesus to put him to death and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to pilate the governor then when judas his betrayer saw that jesus was condemned he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the piece of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the piece of silver, said, It is not lawful to put these into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. This was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they have for them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. So we see the religious powers, the evil religious powers lining up against Jesus, and now we go from the religious powers to the political powers, Rome, and even Judas starting to see the weight of the evil That is happening. The powers of the world closing in on the only innocent person to ever live. Look at verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Once again, Jesus giving no answer. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to him, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So an interesting custom here brings up another chance for us to see the depths of evil that a sinful people can have in response to who Jesus is. This crowd has a choice. They can release Barabbas, a notorious prisoner. We know from other gospels he's a murderer, he's a thug. Or they can release Jesus, the one who spent his whole life giving and loving and showing them the compassionate heart of God. Think about it. This is the choice that they have, And they pick Barabbas. Like, put yourself there. You can You've got to pick one to die, one who has killed people, clearly, notorious prisoner, or the only innocent man to ever live. And they pick Barabbas. I think this is in the story because you are supposed to see something absolutely horrifying in this narrative. You are Barabbas. We are Barabbas, we are the ones who actually deserve to die. And even if we aren't murderers, we reject Jesus in a million different ways every single day. Sin is the worst thing we do every day. And sometimes we do it because we like it. We want to sin. We are the ones who deserve to die. And we love our sin somehow more than Jesus just like the crowds loved Barabbas. And in this stunning display of grace, we see a glimpse of what was about to happen on the cross. Don't miss this. Don't fall asleep now. The guilty sinner goes free, but the innocent man goes to die. Do you see that? That's you. Somehow, in an act of grace, when God is looking upon us, when the choice is kill us in our sin or kill his son for our sin, he picks Barabbas too. This is grace that should change us forever. Think about all the ways that we respond to Jesus in this room. Just like in the narrative so far, we we hate him for who he is and what he has done. We are indignant toward those who worship him with everything. We let our love of money and power keep us from following him or giving him all of our lives. We run away scared when we have a chance to be known as his people. We outright deny him. We are bored by him. We try to act like we are innocent of his blood. These are all things that make us 100% worthy of death. Divine wrath for rejecting Jesus. Some of you maybe need to hear this for the first time. But believers in the room, you need reminded of the destruction of your sin by our Savior. So I pray the Spirit is pointing you out that you are not comfortable right now. This is not a comfortable thing to talk about, okay? That even those who follow Jesus, we reject him in so many different ways. All the different ways that we respond to the gospel being preached on Sunday, in our community groups throughout the week, in our D groups, All of these different ways we respond in ways that make us deserving of death. And how does Jesus respond to all of our sinful responses? He dies. Think about that. All of the ways that he could respond. He knows the way we're going to fail him. Could have just left us there. He could have not cared. He could have just decided to not go to the cross and still been holy and good. But in response to all the ways that we as a church fail him, he dies. And in verses 24 through 66, we see the murder scene of Jesus play out. And I'm not going to read this because I don't want us to get lost in a huge paragraph. Instead, we need to stare at each aspect of this so that we cannot forget just how brutal the death that we deserve is. So they'll start out and they'll strip him naked. Imagine how humiliating that would be in front of a bunch of people. This really did happen and it really should have been us. They would put a robe and a crown of thorns on him to mock him. And this really happened and it really should have been us. And they would spit on his face. They would beat him. This really happened and it should have been us. All this before the actual crucifixion. They shoved sour vinegar wine in his mouth. This really happened. It should have been us. They divided up his clothes and gambled for him. His murder was a game to them. They continued to mock him by putting a sign above him that said, King of the Jews. Then after all this, as they put him up, and he's dying probably of his lungs being filled With blood, around noon, darkness falls over the whole land. You can imagine this scene. And then three hours later, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Please understand this. This was not confusion. This was not unbelief. This was the cry of a man who just took the full force of the wrath of God God forsook his own son the most intense pain of suffering the essence of what hell will be on him his father was still there but only in judgment and wrath and scorn and Jesus's body was taken off the cross and put in a borrowed tomb notice I said borrowed because he will not need it that long this horrible scene, is only beautiful. It's only beautiful if Jesus is alive right now. And he truly died and truly rose again to validate who he is, what he said he would do, and has the authority and power to rescue you from all the ways that you put him on the cross. All those times you don't care All those times you run away, all those times that, for the love of security, convenience, and comfort, you have decided that Jesus would just be kind of an add on to your life. All of that, worthy of death. And it's only beautiful if He's alive right now. And He is. So we've got to end here. Two questions Why did Jesus die? And how did He do it? Why did, why did Jesus die? Remember, God is holy. God must punish the sins of the world. Jesus died because sin must be punished. Your sin must be punished and sin deserves death. But remember, God is love. And Jesus died for God's glory. And Jesus died because it was the only way that you can be back with God. Jesus didn't just die for you. He died instead of you. What love is this? Like do you see how this can't be boring? Like there's something really broken in us if we hear this and it's just normal. This is insane. It would be normal. It'd be a tragic biographical narrative if Jesus got brutally murdered and then stayed in a tomb. But it's not a normal biographical narrative. He's alive right now. But it's only beautiful if you take it by faith this wrath that jesus endured is what you will endure if you think you are going to get to god on your own or if you continue in your rejection of who jesus is and what he has done for those of us in christ we see that horrible scene and we think he did that instead of me for those of you not in christ you see that you see a picture of what you deserve but the judgment has already happened You don't have to end your life with that reality forever. If Jesus is alive right now, that means it was for you. So we'll end on this question. That's why, because God is holy and loving. How? (laughs) How did he do it? If You remember in the beginning, there's no way we could have, right? We all clear on that? No chance of us earning God's favor or doing what only Jesus could do. How did he do it? I'm going to show you this. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and his seat at the right hand of the throne of God, just like he told them in court. Consider him who endured for, from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So here is how Jesus did it for the joy set before him. How did Jesus make it through the absolute agony of the weight of our sin? The joy of the resurrection glory set before him. How will you make it when your sin seems too heavy? The joy set before you is the same joy set before Jesus. Because of the cross and resurrection, your sin is dead. How will you make it through when your suffering seems too much? The joy set before you is the same joy that was set before Jesus. The ultimate suffering you deserve has already been taken by Jesus being forsaken by God and now because of the cross all suffering no matter how dark or how confusing is not a sign that God has forsaken you because he forsook Jesus instead of you and now all suffering is being bent and manipulated and used by God to make you more like Jesus so how will you make it through when this mission to reach people in our city, in the world, who seem to reject Jesus in a million different ways, how will we make it when it seems too heavy? The, Jesus, the joy set before you is the same joy that Jesus has now. Remember that Jesus died in response to our rejection of him. And as the band comes back up to lead us in worship, here's where we have to land. Because at the end of the day, there's a lot of people way smarter than me that have written a lot of different words and pages about all the implications of this news. I'll leave us with this as a church. Because these things are true, and I pray we're not bored by this, we are now free. Remember, we were enslaved, hell-bent on just worshiping ourselves. We are now free to die to ourselves and show people the love of a Savior that could not be stopped by death itself we are now free to proclaim the news that the jesus who definitively died is alive right now let's pray Um, father we confess that as a church we uh We are not proud um, of all the different ways that we respond to you being alive right now. Um, Lord, in my own life, just how, how bored I can be of your word and prayer and the mission. Lord, I think of those of us in this room. I know that there have been times when we could have taken that step of obedience to witness that we ran away because we're afraid Oh Lord, those of us in the room that have gone through suffering unimaginable, there are so many ways that we fall so short of who you are. God, thank you for not leaving us in that. Thank you for sending Jesus to come and live, to die for us instead of us. And Lord, I'm so thankful that Rome and the Jewish leaders didn't ultimately kill Jesus, but he laid his life down so that he could pick it back up. So, Father, because these things are true, I pray that we would sing louder, that the love of money and power would have a looser grip on our souls, that we would be a people who we could not help but talk about the fact that this news is true So, by your spirit, we know you can change all of our lives at once today. So, Lord, do something beyond our imagination. And may you get all the glory. I pray no one leaves here thinking that this church is awesome. I pray we all leave here horrified and in awe of what you've done. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.